Over a decade ago, my grandmother passed away from complications of dementia. 20 years before that, my great-grandmother died of the same cause. Now, many of my relatives are getting older, increasing their risk. While 6.5 million Americans already have Alzheimer's disease. And by 2050, the Alzheimer's Association predicts this number will double. When will we see effective treatments for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia that so often rob people of their mind and their dignity over the last several years of their lives? There's been incredible effort and cost over the past 30 years to bring an end to these cruel diseases. Billions of dollars have been spent by the National Institutes of Health and Biotechs to research new drugs with very little to show for it. Over the past year, this topic has made the news regularly, as Agihelm became the first drug to be approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's in 20 years. But it's received a raft of bad publicity since then, with red flags about this drug's effectiveness, side effects, and cost to the tune of $28,000 per year. The Cleveland Clinic and other health systems have said they won't administer it. And many insurance companies have decided they won't cover it. In this episode of Making Sense of Science, I talk about Agihelm, but more broadly explore the present and future of the fight against dementia with Percy Griffin, Director of Scientific Engagement for the Alzheimer's Association, a nonprofit that's focused on speeding up research, detecting Alzheimer's earlier, and other ways of reducing a person's risk. Percy is a gifted scientist with a doctorate in molecular cell biology from Washington University. And he's led groundbreaking research on Alzheimer's. But he also happens to be one of the best science communicators I've talked with yet. Numerous times in our conversation, I was the one to bring up jargony terms that I probably don't entirely understand myself. And every time he took it back to the 10,000-foot level, he was able to ensure the meaning of this complex and confusing subject matter was crystal clear. As clear as his words is his thinking about where we're at with these efforts and his ideas about what's needed to drive solutions as quickly as possible so that people alive today can benefit, at least, even after so much suffering has already occurred. We talk about the parts of Percy's life that led him to concentrate on working in this important area. He discusses what he sees as the key elements of communicating on science. And then we get into Agihelm. He explains why the Alzheimer's Association has been supportive of Agihelm, even as so many other commentators and organizations have been critical. We then talk about other therapeutics that are under development, which ones to be excited about and how they might leverage precision medicine that looks at therapies in the context of an individual's own biology. We discuss funding and the trade-offs between investing more money into Alzheimer's research compared to other intractable diseases like cancer, and new opportunities to accelerate progress like ARPA-H, President Biden's proposed agency to speed up health breakthroughs. The heart of the conversation, though, is when we get to talking about the social determinants of brain health. Fascinatingly, research suggests the overall number of people affected by dementia is rising only because of the growing population of aging individuals, while the incidence rate of dementia has declined by 13% per decade. And for Alzheimer's, it's declined by 16%. And that's without any drug successfully treating Alzheimer's. I asked Percy about his theories for why this should be the case, and we discussed the pros-cons of continuing to spend massive sums of money to develop new drugs like Agihelm versus refocusing on expanding the policies to address social determinants of brain health, like better education, nutritious food, and safe drinking water that have enabled many to enjoy improved cognition late in life, while clearly benefiting some groups more than others. And on that topic, we talk about the ways you can take matters into your own hands with Percy's top lifestyle recommendations for protecting your mind, and the biomarkers that can be used today to diagnose this disease as early as possible. 
Throughout the conversation, we talk about the important work the Alzheimer's Association is doing on all these fronts. I learned an incredible amount from this conversation. It's a must listen if you're concerned about your own brain health or that of your family members who are getting older. Or if you're just concerned about the future of this country, with experts predicting that the number of people over 65 is going to increase dramatically in the very near future. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is Making Sense of Science. Hello, Percy. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. It couldn't be more important, in my opinion. The numbers of older people and caretakers dealing with Alzheimer's disease is obviously tragic. And the work going on in this area is fascinating and incredibly important, especially speaking as someone whose grandmother and great-grandmother both passed away from dementia complications. Uh, so on that note, I'm curious if you have a personal connection to the issue of Alzheimer's disease, or what was it about this issue that motivated you to want to do great work in this area with the Alzheimer's Association? Yes, um, thank you for having me here, first of all, Matt. It's, it's a real honor to be here working with you. Um, so the, we know, as you mentioned, we know that the issue of Alzheimer's is, is quite staggering. Um, in, uh, 2022, there are 6.5 million Americans, um, living with the disease. And, um, the number is only expected to rise unless we find, um, effective therapies, um, um, improve on, um, risk, um, early detection and diagnosis, as well as reduce the risk of, of getting this disease. So I've always had a, I've always had a passion for, uh, trying to better understand the disease for uh, to come up with better therapies, but also um, I um, my grandma also suffers from dementia, so it's a it's a personal connection as well. And this is the case for a lot of a lot of Americans as um, a lot of Americans, and also um, the caregivers and the care partners who are who are helping to support these people living with Alzheimer's and other dementia. I'm sorry to hear that your grandmother is suffering from dementia. Would you mind um, briefly walking us through, actually, the distinction between Alzheimer's and dementia? I imagine that's a distinction that many people might find a bit blurry. Yes, that's a fantastic question, Matt. Um, so um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia. So dementia is, um, is a collection of symptoms or, or syndromes, right? So it's what the person experiences and not what causes the, um, the experience. Alzheimer's disease is a biological cause of dementia. And there are others too that we, we, um, we typically don't, don't talk about. So things like, um, frontotemporal dementia. We also have Lewy body dementia and vascular dementia. And it's also worth noting that um, in the um, when they look at the neuropathology, about fifty percent of the time the um, the neuropathology is is mixed. So it's um, so um, so it's it's worth mentioning that dementia has many causes, but it manifests with um, certain syndromes that lead to um, some of the symptoms that you you've heard about. Things like the the memory issues, um, the neuropsychiatric issues, and a growing loss of independence. Uh, creating this need for care partners um, to care for people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Yeah, I know sometimes there can be some confusion about those terms. So thank you for, you You very clearly explained the difference. Uh, and, and that brings me to my next topic, which is communication. 
and a focus of yours as Director of Scientific Engagement at the Alzheimer's Association is on science education and communication. And the importance of this role has really been highlighted, I think, by misinformation that we've seen during the pandemic. What would you say are some of the most important elements of effective science communication? So um, so one of the most important things when it comes to effectively communicating your science or effectively communicating anything for that matter is thinking about the audience. You want to make the connection with the audience. Um, you want to make sure that you're meeting the audience where they are. Um, and sometimes this gets lost when you have so much information to share and so much knowledge that you want to share. But you want to make sure that those wonderful evidence-backed um, evidence-backed insights are at a level where people can understand them. Because no matter how fantastic your information is, if you don't reach the audience, it's going to get lost on them. And this is, as you mentioned, this was part of the, the problem where um, misinformation campaigns were more effective at meeting the audience where they were through the media that they preferred. And that's what led to uh, misinformation spreading as opposed to having the evidence-based information uh, spreading uh, better and faster amongst people. So the audience is the key and you need to identify and understand um, the people who are in the audience when you're trying to communicate something in science. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking notes. Uh, as, as a science journalist, you know, I think there's a really interesting dialogue going on right now, especially um, between scientists and journalists and a real back and forth that I think is going to be ultimately very productive in improving science communication uh, on both ends. I think, you know, both disciplines have a lot to learn uh, from one another. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you're leading the way in, in that area as a science communicator. Um, and I know that the, the public messaging on Alzheimer's is, uh, can, be, can be tricky, uh, difficult to navigate. The public messaging over the past year, in particular on the drug Agihome, has been sort of a story unto itself, I would say, uh, maybe over the past nine months or so. It uh, wouldn't be a podcast about Alzheimer's if we didn't discuss Agihelm. So um, uh, Agihelm, just for uh, listeners, was, and please correct me, with uh, this is my my understanding, was the, the first drug approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's in two decades. But there's been a lot of bad publicity and uh, what could amount to some red flags about this drug. And the Cleveland Clinic and other health systems have said they won't administer it. And many insurance companies are saying they won't cover it. In your opinion, Percy, does it make sense for people in the early stages of Alzheimer's to be taking Agihelm? Yeah. So just to take a step back before we get um, we talk about Agihelm or any of the um, other therapies coming down the pipeline, I think we need to recognize that this is an extremely exciting time for Alzheimer's disease um, research, right? Um, so. Agihelm um, was was approved, gained accelerated approval to target the underlying biology of Alzheimer's disease. Now, prior to this, we had only been treating the disease by targeting the symptoms. 
and the and the uh, therapies that were available were um, did not work. They worked differently for different people. So these these options were not great for people living with the the disease. Now, um, Agihelm was tested um, in the clinical trials for in people who are living with the early stage of the disease. So people living with um, mild cognitive impairment or um, or mild Alzheimer's uh, dementia. Right. So that's what that's what it was, that's what it was tested in. So they are the people who are most likely to uh, to to receive benefit. What is also very exciting is that there are other therapies that are also targeting the underlying biology um, of the disease um, coming through the pipeline. Right. So, um, and they're all in the same class. They remove the protein called amyloid. And for, for your listeners out there, amyloid is one of the proteins that clumps up in the brain, um, when someone has Alzheimer's. Right. So, um, but what is, what, what is truly exciting about this is how it changes how we treat Alzheimer's disease. And, um, and we believe that if you're considering taking Adjuhelm or any other medication for Alzheimer's for that matter, you need to have a conversation with your physician first. You need to have a conversation with your physician as well as your care partners and, um, and your family members before taking this or any other drug for Alzheimer's. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the underlying biology of the disease. I, it seems like that it's certainly would be the goal that we should be seeking to target with these therapies. Uh, imagine, seems like there's quite a bit of trickiness there as well uh, when it comes to amyloid versus potentially other underlying um, biological aspects of the disease. But I wanted to, to ask, um, you know, while we are are uh, sort of on the topic of Adjahome, about the price of Adjahelm, just because that's another one of the aspects of this drug that people have been talking about. Uh, the cost is $56,000 per year without insurance, I believe. And I've seen the Institute of Clinical and Economic Review calculate the drug should be priced between $3,800 per year, in their opinion. Uh, Adjahelm is cheaper than some cancer therapies, but the prevalence of Alzheimer's has a multiplier effect on the cost. And it's according to one study that I saw, if 1 million patients were given Adjahelm, the annual cost overall would be $73 billion by 2028. So does the price of Adjahelm, do you think the price in and of itself sets a, a bad precedent in a way for future drug costs? Just to just to clarify, we um, so the price of Adjuhelm was actually reduced from fifty six thousand dollars a year to twenty about twenty eight thousand dollars a year. But um, that being said, we we want to make sure that these therapies are are available to those who have the potential to benefit from them. Right. And this is this is why um, this is why uh, governmental agencies such as um, such as CMS and others, we're, we're encouraging them to or calling on them to provide um, to provide coverage for for this, as well as other drugs that um, that may provide benefit for people living with Alzheimer's um, and other dementias. And you, you um, the price can be a huge barrier to accessing um, treatments. And that's important because. If we don't ensure that uh, people people have access to these therapies, we run we run into the issue of uh, of uh, further uh, deepening already existing health inequities, 
we know that people who are more likely to um, to develop the, uh, the the disease, such as you know um, African Americans and and, and and Hispanic Americans, are um, are are, are um, this is going to pose a huge barrier to them accessing this as well as other treatments. So we want to make sure that we drive access for the people who are living uh, with this disease when therapies become available um, that target the underlying biology so that if there is the potential for them to benefit from uh, from uh, this as well as any other treatments, they have access to it, right? And the coverage is important for that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, well said. And thank you for the correction about the cost being 28000 not 56 And you mentioned also CMS. And I believe in April, uh, very soon, CMS will be deciding whether to confirm its January decision to limit coverage of Adjahelm's cost to patients enrolled in clinical trials. Do you think that CMS will reverse its decision on Adjahelm? Anything that we can project or predict about uh, what they're going to decide so that more people with Medicare can benefit from the drug? So I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to speculate here because I don't, um, I don't know uh, what CMS is going to do, but the Alzheimer's Association has, has called for them to, to reverse this decision because it denies, it effectively denies access to um, all and current, uh, um, current and, um, and future FDA approved treatments that target amyloid. So it's not just about, you know, um, Adjahelm, but this decision also affects other drugs that are in the class. Now, we don't, the, those drugs have not, those uh, drugs coming through the pipeline have not yet reported out. So we don't know what the, what the potential benefit is. Now, for people living with Alzheimer's disease, right, who, um, up until, up until now have only had symptomatic treatments, we want there to be multiple options for these people so that they can, uh, so that they can choose which therapies are, um, which therapies have the best potential to help them, um, to help slow down the progression of the disease. This is why access is so important and the Alzheimer's Association has called for, uh, for them to, um, reverse this decision. In terms of other drugs coming through the pipeline, what are some other therapeutics that you see as especially promising? Ones that maybe target tau tangles, like some map strategies that target neuroinflammation. I mean, there, there are there's there's quite a few different angles on this. Uh, others that protect brain cells, reduce vascular contributions to dementia. Which ones do you think are kind of like the most promising right now? Is it just hard hard to say? So um, again, I'm not I'm not going to speculate, but what we want are as many shots on goal as possible. So um, and we've t- we've talked about this a little bit throughout this podcast. Is the um, we're looking we want to target the underlying biology of the disease, right? And um, so it's not just amyloid and tau that are changing in the disease. We want to target all of the aspects of the disease um, to ensure that you know um, to ensure that. Um, we have the best, po- we have the best chance of, uh, providing benefit for the people living with the disease, right? And a lot of things go, go, go wrong in Alzheimer's. These include things like, you know, some vascular contributions, um, amyloid and tau, which we know, we also know about the communication between cells. But one thing that, that, um, gets me particularly excited is work that is looking at inflammation and inflammation in the brain. 
right? Um, that's part of what I studied in grad school. So that, that, that makes it cool for me. But, um, these immune cells in the brain have the, have the potential to help clearing, uh, with clearing some of the, um, the proteins that, that aggregate in Alzheimer's disease. So if we can tap into the, um, but if we, so if we can tap into the, um, into the immune system of the brain, there's, that's, there's a chance that that might produce, provide some benefit. But it, I just want to, want to, um, want to also emphasize that the reason why we want so many shots on goal is because given the complexity of, of, of Alzheimer's disease, it's unlikely that, you know, a single dietary um, supplement or something of the sort is going to uh, provide benefit. We need um, powerful combination therapies that um, that target multiple aspects of the disease so that um, we can defeat this devastating disease. Yeah, it seems like we we should not view these shots on goal as one-offs they're um you know they should uh ideally they would be combined into some type of cocktail that uh, given all the different ways that people seem to be affected by this disease you know the best solution might be some sort of cocktail that combines multiple strategies is that your sense Yes, yes. So multiple. Um, so if we had, say, um, therapies that combined um, uh, targeting amyloid, targeting tau, targeting the inflammation, you know, and that's 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 what happens in other chronic um, chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, as well as um, as well as um, as well as cancer. Right. Um, we need these multiple, we need these, we need these, uh, different, uh, therapies that target the different, um, aspects of the disease so that, uh, so that we can, we can, um, we can uh, affect the biology as much as possible. And also in the, in the, in the future, when we, if we have this, um, kind of palette of options of therapies, then we have the potential to do, um, to do more of precision medicine approaches, right? Because the disease, um, can manifest differently in different people, right? There's some people that it happens on the earlier side. So there's the earlier onset of the disease and the people who have the, the disease later on. So we, we, and also the, the, the genetic changes that happen, you know, the, the changes in the behavioral symptoms as well. So we want to make sure that we're, we're moving towards powerful combination therapies that leverage precision medicine to provide the highest probability of providing benefit for people. Percy, how is the Alzheimer's Association's Part the Cloud program helping to support development of these strategies and maybe ultimately, you know, the sort of combination therapies leveraging precision medicine that you just spoke about? Thank you for bringing up the Part the Cloud program. It's it's such an, uh, a fantastic and innovative program that is helping to accelerate the the development of drugs from the um, from the bench to the bedside. So it it provides funding for um, for you know the early stages of of clinical trials and clinical development. And so far, we've we've funded over um, about fifty nine projects with over sixty million dollars to help with 
with this, um, this drug development. And we're helping to diversify the pipeline. So targeting these multiple aspects of the disease that, that go wrong. So looking at things like, um, you know, metabolism, which is how the cells in the brain use energy, um, things like inflammation, which, which we've, we've touched on, a, um, a little bit here, as well as, you know, even how the, um, how the, um, the, the cells in the brain, like break down the, the, the trash that accumulates in within the brain, um, within the brain itself. So, um, by accelerating all of these, um, all of these, um, therapies, we, we, we help to, you know, have those many, many shots on goal that will potentially come up with effective therapies for us, for people living with the disease to choose from. Yeah. Congratulations on, on that work, the $69 million to diversify the, the pipeline. Um, you know, the, the, it makes me think about ARPA-H, and there's been a lot of excitement around President Biden's proposal for ARPA-H, basically borrowing the concept for ARPA-H from the Defense Department's DARPA program. And many people, some of them in Congress, uh, see this as a promising avenue for accelerating progress in health research and resulting treatments with the ultimate purpose of going more rapidly from the bench side to the patient's bedside, as, as you mentioned. Given how many people are affected by Alzheimer's disease, should research for Alzheimer's receive more funding from Congress and perhaps more ARPA-H funding compared to other common diseases like cancer? Yeah, so... Um Again, to take a step back to to understand this, we know that funding drives innovation, right? So, if um, to take the example that you talked about um, in cancer, cancer has been receiving uh, or cancer research from um, from from uh, from the net, from governmental funding, they've been receiving um, more than two billion dollars um, from the government since about two thousand and three. If I, if the, since about 2003. But with Alzheimer's, funding from the government was a little over $400 million um, in about 2011. And it's um, only recently through... Um, through efforts of the alt advocacy from the um, Alzheimer's impact movement, as well as others that that helped uh, us come up with the um, the um, National Alzheimer's uh, Project Act, and that led to increased funding. And now we're we're up to uh, three billion dollars, uh, over three billion dollars, with an extra two hundred eighty nine million dollars uh, just just approved um, earlier this month. So um, we know that it drives, um, we know that this funding drives innovation because in cancer, we've seen that there's multiple options available. There's multiple options um, for treatments. There's options for early detection and diagnosis. And there's also a greater understanding of the of the um, the efforts for risk reduction, right? And we need the same for Alzheimer's, right? We need we need to target all of these things for uh, for Alzheimer's as well. So I believe that the increased funding is going to help drive innovation um, and help um, accelerate research efforts. And um, um, we, as the Alzheimer's Association, are also are also um, helping to advance the research through our funding. We have over three hundred million dollars currently active across. Um, 900 projects all over the world, and that's what's driving our understanding and, and moving the field uh, the field forward to where we are at a point where we're um, where we're um, 
We have disease, uh, we have therapies that target the underlying biology. We're also helping to understand risk reduction strategies. And we, we have, we have, um, you know, methods for early detection and diagnosis looking at, you know, uh, blood biomarkers, imaging, as well as some of the biofluids to help with early detection and diagnosis so we can catch this disease early and have the best shot at defeating it. Yeah, well well said. And of course, there are projects that ARPA-H could focus on to target multiple diseases, like uh, you know the way that advances in artificial intelligence and omics could benefit both Alzheimer's and cancer and, and other diseases as well. Uh, it's really tough ethical question, you know, when it comes to trade-offs between different diseases, obviously. Um, uh, but you talked about risk reduction. And of course, in addition to drugs and th therapeutics, uh, there are biomarkers to um, recognize the earliest signs of dementia and Alzheimer's. And I do want to talk about that uh, as well. Another aspect of risk reduction is the social and environmental factors that can either protect or harm brain health. So I want to ask about the incidence rate of Alzheimer's, which uh, in, it, it seems like there's some evidence to suggest that it actually has decreased since 1998 uh, from at least one study that I saw. And I've seen the argument by, for example, Penn State professor Daniel George, that the overall number of people affected by dementia is incrementally rising only because of the growing population of aging individuals. And some research suggests that the incidence rate of dementia has declined by 13% per decade, and for Alzheimer's, it's declined by 16%. And that's without any drug successfully treating Alzheimer's. So I guess I'm curious, if just, uh, you know, one question I have is if you would agree that the incidence rate is going down from what you've seen. So um, I think we I think there's there's um, more nu more nuance to to it than just that. So um, so potential factors that could that could um, contribute to you know potential decreases in the incident rate of Alzheimer's are things like increased education, access um, increased changes in um, in the awareness of the disease, access to healthy food, as well as exercise. We know that um, what's good for your, for the heart is good for the uh, for the brain as well. So things like that could have uh, could have potentially changed the the incident rate of Alzheimer's disease. But this is potentially um, this is potentially coming from data that is in in high income countries. Right. We know that um, low and middle income countries are still increasing in their prevalence. Right. And we need to further understand what what is potentially helping with the with the um, with these changes in the in, in the incidence in high income countries. So we can apply that data to low income, um, low and middle income countries as well. So um, it may be changed in certain places. But across the board, we know that uh, um, based on the modeling and the projections, it's expected to increase globally and even in the United States. And we need to understand we need to understand what's driving these um, these increases and decreases as well. So we can we can um, we can identify the gaps in in where we can target. Um, we can identify the gaps in our knowledge as well as, you know, bolster the efforts that may be making a difference. Yeah. And even in the the you know the, the countries that you mentioned where the incidence rate has been going down perhaps over the you know past couple of decades there has have been recent shifts toward free market principles that 
could sort of jeopardize some of the progress that we've seen in policies that um, have benefited the social determinants of brain health for uh, for some groups of people, at least. Uh, but that, that same Professor Daniel George makes the argument in an op-ed that he wrote last year for Stat News that the declining incidence rate is being driven by things that some countries, including the U.S., that you mentioned that have you know they've been doing over the past couple of decades to address several social determinants of brain health, and he lists a number of measures that these countries have taken, uh, such as uh, and you covered a number of these uh, just now, but um, you know some of them are guaranteeing nutritious food, safe drinking water living wage jobs, safer neighborhoods, healthcare, higher education, adult learning opportunities, which can sort of contribute to this cognitive reserve that we know can benefit uh, people in, in uh, preventing, safeguarding them from um, dementia issues later on in life, uh, and safe, affordable housing. Uh, he makes the very good point that we need to focus on expanding the policies to address the social determinants that have enabled some portion of society to enjoy improved brain health while certainly benefiting some groups more than others. So my question is, you know, after billions of dollars uh, have been spent by NIH and biotechs on researching molecular agents for Alzheimer's, is it possible that we could make more progress by focusing on doing more to address social determinants of brain health? So, um, so we don't, um, yes, a lot of a lot of um, money has been spent on on advancing molecular agents, but we want to advance all of the areas, including treatments, um, you know, early detection and diagnosis, as well as what influences risk, right? And social social determinants of health. Uh, just just to just to provide a, a definition for um, for your for your uh, for the people listening is that the social determinants are. Um, they're kind of they're the the conditions in which a person is is born. They live, they work, they play, they eat, they exercise, and 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 these um, affect several different um, several different health outcomes, right? So um, we're we're beginning to uh, we're beginning to understand that more and more. But for a disease that uh, a disease like Alzheimer's that uh, de that develops over such a that manifests in the in the later stages of life and develops across the life course. We need to understand that life course perspective. Now, um, the social determinants of health kind of encompass that, that life course perspective, right? But we need to make sure that we're not just understanding that in some people, right? We need to make sure that we understand that in all people. And there's heavy gaps in our knowledge, especially when it comes to, um, when it comes to diverse groups, because Historically, they've not been um, they've been underrepresented in a lot of research. So we need to understand how um, how these social determinants affect their risk of developing um, the disease as well. So um, advancing these is, um, is 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 crucial to understanding what we know about um, about risk and general risk reduction. And we 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 welcome um, advancements in all in all avenues, not just some of them, to uh, to provide options and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and other dementia. And of course, to some extent, I think it's fair to say that, you know, again, to some extent, uh, people can take matters into their own hands in, in terms of reducing the risk of um, Alzheimer's and dementia. If individuals could do just one or two things to improve their own brain health, what do you think they should be? Yes. Yeah, so, um, 
exercise and diet are two of the most important things that uh, that individuals can do, right? We, um, I know um, some people have heard about the Mediterranean and the and, and the mind diets, and um, we're still learning to understand how they work in different people. Um, but um, we know that exercise and diet can benefit the heart. Um, and what is good for the heart is good for the brain, right? Um, and we need to understand um, what potential um, lifestyle uh, strategies can help reduce the risk of developing um, cognitive decline. This is why the Alzheimer's Association is leading the U.S. Pointer Study. Now, this is a study that is um, that is evaluating, you know, several domains of uh, several things that people do in their daily lives. So things like their diet, um, how much exercise they get, uh, cardiovascular monitoring, um, um, as well as others to come up with a lifestyle recipe to reduce the risk of cognitive decline. And it's important that we do this in a, in, um, a community-based, um, accessible, culturally sensitive manner so that whatever, whatever, um, strategies that we come up with are accessible to all people from all communities who may be at risk of developing Alzheimer's and other dementia. Yeah. And I, uh, it's great to hear about the Alzheimer's pointer study. I imagine the smoking cessation is, is a really, uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the link to cardiovascular health and it just seems like smoking cessation is, um, such a contributor to better health. And that might even relate to some of the reduced incidence rate that we've seen in countries like the U.S., which have really seen tremendous success with public health campaigns to convince people to, to stop smoking. And um, the success of these efforts does seem to have corresponded with decreased risk of the cardiovascular diseases that can elevate dementia risk. So there's, there's several factors involved, right? Um, so smoking cessation, um, is, 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 is known that it's known to be helpful and great to, for overall health, right? So, um, it could definitely contribute, but, um, taking the, the broader, um, the broader perspective of, you know, multiple lifestyle interventions and, and what we can point to and change, um, is, is potentially what's, what's leading to this benefit. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the things that help with, um, you know, cardiovascular health are the ones that are going to help with brain health as well. So, it, um, so, so these, these campaigns definitely have, uh, have potentially play, uh, played a role. Last question on life, these lifestyle, um, best practices, if you will. Should people avoid daytime napping? There's been some news lately that I've it's caught, got on my radar about research showing that daytime napping over the decades is linked to issues later on with dementia. Uh, it, it just seems like to me to beg the question of whether napping is the cause of the problem or just a symptom of the problem. Do you, you have an opinion on which might be the case? So um, I think the I think we still need more research to understand um understand how, you know, changes in um, the amount of napping, you, the, the amount of napping you do and changes to like sleep and all that um, um, influence or risk of developing dementia, right? But um, again, uh, as you mentioned, this there's a kind of a, a bi-directional relationship between um, sleep and the risk for for developing dementia, right? There's an and uh, I I think I'm familiar with the with the studies that you were referring to. They 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 saw that as um, 
as people get older or people have a um, higher risk for developing dementia, they, they tend to have more naps and they nap for longer, right? But, uh, but again, that is not necessarily saying that it's causative, right? There could be other things that could potentially be, um, say, changes, um, changes in your circadian rhythms that lead to, you know, activation and um, activation of the immune cells in the brain that may target certain populations of brain cells that control these behaviors such as sleep. We need to understand this better to uh, to be able to uh, fully leverage this as a risk reduction strategy. So I think we need more research. And um, the Alzheimer's Association is, is funding research in, the, in this area. And we also have a, a professional interest area as part, of, uh, as part of our professional society, which looks at sleep and circadian rhythms to help understand how they may be a potential driver as well as a risk factor for developing dementia. And I know you've done some groundbreaking research in this area of circadian dysfunction and neurodegeneration. Uh, you mentioned that Alzheimer's Association is um, doing work in this area. Has there been progress with researching therapies to lower YKL40? And I hope that you could explain to us as part of your answer what YKL40 even is. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so YKL40 is, um, is one of those measures that is, that is seen to be, um, to be reduced in, um, one of the biofluids, the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that bathes the brain, um, and the spinal cord and keeps it hydrated. So it's seen to be reduced in people who have Alzheimer's disease. And this, this work that, that you're, you're, you're pointing, to, this work that you're pointing to was work that was done in my graduate school, um, my graduate school lab. So, um, I'm, 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 I'm familiar with it, but, um, we need to be, we need to be very careful when we're thinking about, uh, potential targets that may just lower, um, lower a certain protein that leads to a reduction or an increase in, um, in immune, immune cell act, in immune cell activity, right? So what if you, so the research that was, that was shown, um, um, from the paper that you're talking about, if you reduce YKL40, what happens is that it leads to, um, increases in the, um, in the activation of the immune cells, and that leads to um, that leads to increased uptake and breakdown of some of these proteins that are um, in the that are that clump up in the brain, right? But with the immune with the immune system, you want to be very careful about the timing as well as the amount of of this activation that you get, right? So if you activate these immune cells at a time when um, when you know there's no plaques, there's a potential that they could um, become aberrantly activated and attack healthy brain cells, and nobody will want that. So there's there's this complexity around the the immune cells of the brain, and we need to fully understand how to properly leverage it. So it's potentially it's um, it's it's work that is in progress right now, but it's and um, also work that has been funded through the Part the Cloud program, for example. But it's going to it's going to take a lot of research to understand how to properly leverage the immune system of the brain to provide benefit, and that's and it's it's exciting that this is being looked at right now. So um, I just wanted to to point that out and talk about that in, in the context of YKL forty. I love how clearly you explain that. There's so much complexity uh, in in these areas, but you you do a really great job of breaking it down. Um, 
I, you know, we haven't talked about biomarkers yet for Alzheimer's. And there's been a lot of really interesting research in the past year or so on biomarkers. I, I, I want to try to, you know, se uh, separate the hype from what's real today or what will be real soon. You know, aside from cognitive performance indicators like cognition tests, what research-backed biomarkers for Alzheimer's and overall brain health should people get checked regularly? So you um, you so this question uh, brings up a, a couple of um, a couple of interesting points, right? So biomarkers now for um, for 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 the listeners, a biomarker is is um, something that you can check. Um, so like a fluid or, you know, imaging or something that gives you an indication of, you know, the progress or the status of, you know, a disease. So biomarkers are useful for early detection and diagnosis. They're also, um, they're also useful for monitoring the, the progress of the disease. And they're useful for looking at the efficacy of treatments, right? Um, currently, um, one of the, the biggest, uh, uh, biomarkers that that has received FDA uh, approval is imaging, and that is uh, PET imaging, where they use huge magnets to to um, to look at the brain while people are still alive to look at the hallmarks of the disease, right? But these are these are expensive and and um, and inaccessible, right? But what what would be the true holy grail, and what and what has the um, what has the field so very excited? Is the um, is blood biomarkers right? Because I know um, I know I've I personally um, have never had any kind of imaging, but I get my blood drawn all the time, right? So that would truly drive access and um, and will be um, and will be a cheaper option for people for early detection and diagnosis. That being said, we are um, they are on the horizon, but they're not here yet. Right there, um, we've made significant progress in, um, in the past couple of years. Um, the, 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 the progress, which is, um, which is, uh, due in part to the increases in funding, um, is, is, is tremendous. And we, we're looking at several different markers now, looking at things like amyloid, looking at, um, some markers that are released from the neurons when they're when they're when they're stressed or damaged. Looking at how we're even looking at things related to inflammation now, but these are not yet ready for prime time. They're being um, they're being evaluated and tested in um, specialized um, clinical settings as well as research settings. So they're on the horizon. There's a lot of excitement, but they're not here yet. And they will drive access and, 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 and really help with the early detection and diagnosis um, efforts. Uh, thank you once again for defining the, uh, the terms. Uh, it's incredibly helpful. I, I'm just sort of charge ahead with uh, terms like biomarkers. And I'd really appreciate you, um, you know, taking a step back to help people understand and me to, under, to understand these terms that I'm using um, better. So that's uh, I, both promising and uh, a little bit frustrating that, you know, we, do, we don't have these blood biomarkers yet. In the meantime, is would you see cerebrospinal fluid? And uh, is that the type of thing that people can look to with some reliability for uh, as, as a biomarker for, you know, issues that they might be developing in a few years? 
So uh, cerebrospinal fluid, and that's again the fluid that um, that beats the brain and the spinal cord. Um, so that does have some markers that that have been um, validated, right? But um, again, with the cerebrospinal fluid, you need to, or, or with any of these biomarkers, if you're ever going to look at them, you need to talk to talk to your physician to. Um, to to assess whether or not this is this is an option that's available to you, right? Um, um, nor, um, as you mentioned, normally we uh, or tip, the typical thing that is used for screening is, is cognitive tests, right? And this is this is something that should be done in like the annual wellness visit, um, as well as others. But these can help um, these can help with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But you need to have a conversation um, with your physician. They they have been uh, they've been validated, and they're also moving through um, uh, they're also moving through the regulatory process. But um, as to their wide availability, you need to talk to a physician to make sure that um, to make sure that they're, they're appropriate for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Percy, to, to wrap things up, I just wanted to give an opportunity for you to tell people how the Alzheimer's Association supports individuals who are suffering from or, or caring for people suffering from Alzheimer's or any other efforts by the Alzheimer's Association that you'd like to raise awareness about that we haven't covered yet. Yeah, so um, we've definitely talked about our efforts in research, but um, we also have the a twenty four seven helpline. This is the, the number is one eight hundred two seven two thirty nine hundred. Now this offers information and um, and advice to uh, to uh, people living with Alzheimer's. This is this has over two hundred fifty thousand callers each year, and there's um, and it's and it's available in more than um, one hundred seventy um, languages. There's also um, a lot of support groups that the Alzheimer's Association um, um, offers through um, the Alls Connected, which is our online community. And we have so many different educational programs to uh, to um, to help inform people um, about Alzheimer's and, and 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 the disease and help to like recognize some of these these signs and symptoms as well. Now, um, just as a um, just as a, a, a call to action, um, with all of these therapeutics, all of these, um, all of these biomarkers, we, um, we, we need your help in, in helping to, to find a cure. So don't just hope for a cure. Help us find one. We know that the, the, the first person who will receive, um, will receive a cure for Alzheimer's will be in a clinical trial. So um, you can you can sign you can sign up for um, for clinical trials through the Alzheimer's Association's free clinical trials matching service, Trial Match. And it's not just for uh, people living with the disease. Um, we also have studies for um, healthy healthy volunteers and caregivers. So if you're interested and and you want to partake in the research, please uh, please visit the alz.org site, and we can, and you could be directed to Trial Match to um, sign up for clinical trials as well. Excellent. Thank you for mentioning that. I will definitely put those links into the show notes for this episode. Percy, thanks so much for all of the important work that you're doing and that the Alzheimer's Association is doing. I really appreciate it. I've learned an incredible amount in the past 49 minutes from you, and I can truly say that it has been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. 
And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.